Welcome to the Toasted Sister Podcast. I'm Andy Murphy. Agriculture Council. I'm a member of Oneida Nation of Wisconsin. All right, so tell me a little bit about the Intertribal Agriculture Council. So, Intertribal Agriculture Council was formed in 1987 and you know, kind of came out of um, findings that there was uh, the lack of planning in Indian agricultural resources, a major gap there. And so, Intertribal Agriculture was formed when uh, I believe it was about 86, 87 tribes came together in Las Vegas and um, put together the charter and, um, you know, and formed the Intertribal Agriculture Council. So over the past 30 years, Intertribal Agriculture Council, or IAC as, uh, as we call it, has worked to promote American Indian agriculture and natural resources from, you know, all of the different variety of, of areas that help our producers in, in our tribes. So financing, conservation, uh, value-added production, marketing, you know, really a whole, uh, a whole variety, you know, a whole spectrum of different services. Primary focus on individual agricultural producers, but we work closely with tribes and you know, different nonprofit and you know, organizations as well. Yeah, you guys seem to have your uh, eye on a lot of different things, and that's kind of what um, really makes, I guess, the food happen, <laughs> some of the food happen in Native America. But, but what about today? How is um, uh, Native agriculture today? Are there any issues that uh, tribes are really focusing on, or is there something that you're really focusing on? Well, yeah, there's a, you know, a, lot, of, a lot of different angles, you know, that's I don't think you can really take just one single approach and you know or focus on one single area. I think you need to focus broadly. One of our big priorities is youth, and so you know we've sponsored and hosted a number of regional youth summits for many years now. We've brought uh, tribal youth down to our membership meeting in Las Vegas. That's every uh, every December. We've been a big supporter and partner in University of Arkansas's. Uh, youth leadership summit that happens every July, you know. So we've we've done a variety of of different efforts to support youth. Historically, Intertribal Agriculture Council is you know is predominantly focused on on the producer on production. And when you look at at that production, and you look at the numbers. According to the 2012 USDA Ag Census, there was roughly actually about 3.24 billion dollars in annual sales by almost 72,000 American Indian farmers and ranchers. You know, and I think that those numbers sometimes get lost in, you know, in the overall discussion, even you know, within the context of food sovereignty. And 
our organization has, you know, has really worked to support those producers. But you look at that $3.24 billion, and almost all of that is commodity production, either livestock or rural crops. You know, we do have a good amount of traditional food production in many of our communities. There is some value added, but it's almost all at this point commodity production. You know, we're looking at how do we, how do we help uh, to provide more support to encourage more local production to keep more of those foods within our communities instead of just being shipped off and entering into the, you know, to the global uh, commodity food distribution, you know, an agricultural uh, complex. Part of the strategy that I've been working on and with our partners here, and I actually cover the Great Lakes region, is we've done um, a series of food summits. Increasingly have put a focus on for those food summits of bringing in chefs where our organization has historically been more focused on production we're trying to combine both that production with you know the the actual cooking the presentation the value added on those foods so you know a big word today is you know farm to table or forest you know ocean to uh, to table of really getting that more of that full cycle and the full story of, of the foods and for the participants that come that they're able to participate uh, you know, on the production side of learning about seed keeping or conservation planning or season extension with, with greenhouses or, or hoop houses, you know, that you get that production side of things, but that you also have an opportunity to, to get hands-on with with processing, with adding value, you know, and then that's part of where we've brought the chefs in for the food summits that we've done over the past couple of years. We've had, you know, a, a team of indigenous chefs preparing all, you know, all the foods, uh, been able to to get the youth into the kitchen cooking alongside them. So that's part of the approach that we've taken as, you know, as, as trying to build more excitement and support for the food and ultimately trying to get more of that production focused on, you know, staying in our communities. Where a lot of that commodity production, where the production now is commodity-based and not supporting the communities, a lot of it goes back to infrastructure. And just, a, you know, a, a lack of that infrastructure or where we do have it, in the, you know, in the case of almost all our communities have a commercial kitchen, but if an individual wants to go in and make jams and then sell those jams, you know, oftentimes that's going to be prohibited. Uh, there's prohibitions against you know entrepreneurial activity and, and development, and so you know that's one that's one of the other things we're looking at is putting you know putting some of those programs in place. So when you ask what does food sovereignty mean, well, that's an example of you know food sovereignty for you know for an individual or for a family, you know having access to to those resources is. Um, as part of something we're looking at and where, you know, some of it is just having the policies and programs in place to, to be able to have access to you know, some of those resources and facilities that are already there. And how have our, maybe our, our ideas of farming uh, changed over time? I mean, when we look at, you know, some of these big documentaries about where our food comes from, we see that, um, you know, farming, uh, farmers are just a small, tiny community compared to a long time ago. But is it the same in Indian country? Uh, and, and, and how can we maybe make agriculture more popular just within our own communities, not just uh, with, with youth? Well, you know, looking at the history, it's it's very interesting. And 
uh, go back 150 years, 151 years, 1866. Here in, uh, in the Great Lakes region, my tribe, Oneida, had sold to market 33, almost 33,000 bushels of grain. There's 56 pounds in a bushel, so you're talking a huge amount of food. Over half of that, about 18,500 of those bushels were corn. You know, that was our ancestral, you know, indigenous, indigenous, you know, varieties, not some sort of field corn from Monsanto. And it wasn't a big tribal operation that was doing it. It was families that were outgrowing. You know, it's just almost mind-boggling to, to look back and, you know, to think 150 years ago, you know, that uh, that same year, just um, not far away, um, an Omni tribe had sold the market 75,000 pounds of sugar. You know, you just think of, of the amount of, of labor that would have gone into into doing that. You know, that's not that's not even syrup. That's all the way down to to sugar of you know just absolutely astounding levels of production 150 years ago. You know, over time that production had you know in a, in a lot of instances has has declined, especially with more of the, of the traditional foods, but. You know, back in those days, there was a lot of trading, you know, and going back even, you know, even farther, we had trade routes crossing the whole the whole continent, all of Turtle Island here. Um, you know, so I think it's important to have some understanding of what, you know, of what that historical production was. You know, and back in, you know, back in the day, if you didn't have food, you know, if you weren't growing, if, you know, if you weren't producing food in your community, you know, oftentimes your community would, you know, you would starve. So you know, we had to have that level of production. And then over the course of, of the years, you know, just looking at farming with the BIA coming in with the boss farmers, all the boarding school efforts combined with a variety of other factors, you know, I think it has, in a lot of communities, has led to some resistance against farming and, and agriculture. You know, I, I think that there's definitely in the past five you know, 10, even, you know, 20 years or longer, that there's been a definitely a recognition that food is important. Food is our, our medicine. You know, in some communities, you know, for some individuals, food is an opportunity to make a livelihood. If you can, you know, live sustainably and, you know, have, you know, make a sustainable living off the land, that's opportunity for, for economic development. So, that's part of how, you know, of looking at that history, I think, is important to be able to really understand where we are and to look at where we're going into the future. Okay. And you mentioned sustainably. or uh, Are there any um, issues with uh, producing, producing food for economic development and maybe versus uh, environmental preservation and, and with that sustainable state of mind? It, you know, it's another another interesting you know angle on you know on the word agriculture. You know, you look here in the Great Lakes, and uh, wild rice harvest is you know is probably in some areas just about starting, and it's going to be you know really picking up in the next couple of weeks. You know, and over the next month is is the rice harvest. Wild rice that is agriculture. You know, tribes are managing and maintaining those lakes, and just the very act of harvesting is, uh, you know, is, is cultivation. So, you know, when I say agriculture, you know, I just I, I do want to, you know, just to, you know, to, to clarify that, 
agriculture is not just cows, plows, fencing off the field. Agriculture is how do we, you know, how do we gather food and how does the landscape help to provide? And, you know, you look at a lot of the historical production systems, you know, they really work with the land and that act of, of harvesting in many instances help, helps to promote the resource. That's one angle, um, you know, just thinking about agriculture, but thinking about it from a, from a sustainability perspective, that's really where a lot of our work is right now, is working with tribes to develop overall agricultural natural, and, and natural resources management plans, you know, that you can take an approach on, you know, on a bigger scale of ensuring that that you know that you're going to have that resource over time and you know that if a tribe if the community does decide to pursue some economic opportunities that you're taking more of an ethical approach to economic development you know not just trying to produce as much as you can off the land and then the other thing that's important to keep in mind is that there's some foods that you know that are very rare and over harvesting can quickly deplete those resources and you know, with, the, with a lot of the work that we do, we're very sensitive of, um, you know, of, of those products. And um, one of our one of our efforts is a mobile farmers market, and you know, we just we just won't carry some of those products of even something like a, a chaga tea. You know, the, the chaga mushroom in many areas has been so over harvested that you know there's a lot of good harvesters out there, but the more that there's that market demand, it's putting more and more pressure on that natural resource. So I do think that you know that you need to look at what is that food and what is that resource when when making some of those decisions of what may be um, what may be something that is um, that is okay to sell and you know what is something you know that needs to just be more for for the community and you know and for individual use. On the topic with ethical economic development uh-huh. and you know, food is economic development. We hear a lot, and a lot of people just flat out say, "No, we we shouldn't be selling our traditional foods." I understand that, and, and I think that's a, a decision for you know for every individual or or community to make. And part of where I think where a lot of the resistance to those sales has you know has come from is where for a lot of these foods, when production became so and just the availability became so constrained that you know your first priority is that you know that food's got to be for for your ceremonial purposes for your family and community first okay and you mentioned the mobile farmers market uh what is that and what kind of products uh are are in it so uh, a few years ago um i just had seen um up here in you know in, in my region of um I was in at uh, at Oneida and was talking with the retail store manager and just asked her what what she could use help with, and she was saying, "Well, we could use help of, you know, of getting wild rice from Leech Lake in northern Minnesota here to Oneida," and went on to explain a complex of someone would drive it from Leech Lake, drop it off at BIA, someone from Oneida would go up there, and you know, just really complicated logistics, and it just got me thinking, you know, we we had trade routes back in the day, if we had more support for for moving and transporting those products and connecting, you know, different communities that we could really do a lot to reconnect our trade routes. So we ended up putting a grant application in, and um, eventually we uh, we received that grant and used it to get a, a big uh, Mercedes Sprinter cargo van. And, you know, that really is the mobile farmer's market. But, you know, what the focus has been 
is you know hosting market events in different communities and in gradually evolving of where we've built relationships and working to um, you know to help to improve market access for producers and for their and for their food products at the same time as trying to make traditional foods more available in our communities. I know the uh, Intertribal Agriculture Council also uh, created that uh, trademark uh, made produced by American Indians is that is that am I saying that right it's a trademark? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, the the made the made and produced by American Indians uh, it is a trademark a free program that our organization administers you know, it's part of our American Indian Foods program that has taken producers to, you know, to big food shows for uh, for quite a number of years. And, you know, with the mobile farmer's market is, is more of a of an effort to provide coordinated marketing, the sales, distribution of foods and, you know, really filling some of, um, of that gap in connecting you know, supply, demand, and really trying to uh, to break down some of those of, of of those intertribal barriers and rivalries that are there now, and and trying to get everybody working together and on the same page. Okay, and uh, why is it important for um, uh, producers, maybe even small producers, to uh, be able to stick that little logo, that trademark, on the back of the package of uh, corn or rice or um, you know uh, tea? Well, it, it helps to differentiate that product. You know, it helps to show the authenticity of that food, and you know, with a lot of the discussion in the past couple of few months with cultural appropriation, I think that this is one small step that can help to support producers and, you know, and it can help to show a potential customer or, um, you know, or even other producers of, you know, hey, this, you know, this is a, you know, an authentic made by American Indian products. So that's a lot of the intention behind that trademark. And we have both a a sticker that you can put right on a packaging or we've got a digital logo. And it's not just for foods. It also, uh, it also is available to artists. Okay. And I do want to talk a little bit about uh, appropriation, but um, uh, how, how, do you know how many products do have that stamp, that trademark on it? Um, I believe a couple of hundred. Mm, okay. Can you give me maybe a little sampling of some of the products that do have that trademark? Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, we've got uh, wild rice, and we've got uh, uh, multiple different uh, different producers in the Great Lakes that are using it. Spirit Lake Native Farms of uh, Bruce and, and Tawny Savage <clears throat> have used it for uh, have used it for many years. We uh, work with uh, Bone Arrow is U Mountain Ute operation, and they do a variety of different types of of cornmeal. Uh, Ramona Farms down in the southwest that has uh, um, you know tepary beans and panole and different types of corn. Red Lake is is using it. Um, you know, we got a, a whole variety of, of other of products. So a lot of fishermen um, are using it as well. And you know, again, that is a, that is a free program. So you know, there's just a simple application form, and then it's you know it's available for anyone who um, who you know has successfully uh, submitted an application. Uh, cool. Tonka bars uh, is a, is another uh, is another big one that, uh, that that uses it and has pretty wide distribution. 
Yeah. And um, here in Albuquerque, uh, well, I haven't been to every single grocery store here in Albuquerque, but I have found uh, Bow and Arrow and Tonka Bar and Red Lake or the, 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 rice, the, the rice in the black package with the wolf howling at the moon. Is that white? Oh, yeah, that's white, uh, white Earth. White Earth, yeah, White Earth. That's, that's what I've seen here. But um, what, what can be done to get more of these products out uh, farther than just like the, the local uh, grocery stores? Well, one of our efforts that, you know, is kind of a, an offshoot or, you know, where a mobile farmer's market is, is really a pilot project. Ultimately, right now, what we're working to build is an indigenous foods cooperative. You know, in a little bit of discussion, do we call it indigenous foods or indigenous goods or indigenous agricultural cooperative? But the basic idea is let's work together. Let You know, similar to what is already happening to, uh, you know, to a degree right now, the more that we can get all of these products as part of uh, you know, a coordinated distribution and marketing effort, then it's going to be easier to, to move the products around you know and of course being sensitive for uh, you know, carbon footprint and just overall transportation costs but just to illustrate you know we've done pallet shipments we're able to ship a pallet of you know up to 2,000 pounds per per pallet for a fraction of the cost you know that it would take to ship that uh, you know just FedEx or UPS or postal service packet you know of you know boxes you know, what we're looking at is connecting regional distribution hubs and being able to ship among different regions and then distribute more uh, more locally is one of the approaches, um, you know, that, we're, that, we've, that we've been working on implementing. Uh, I think there's some other areas where the cooperative could, could help, even in terms of uh, from a purchasing standpoint of if we can get more of equipment discounts and you know, looking at some other strategies to, to help producers just on a variety of different of different challenges they, they may face and helping to turn those into opportunities. And that's one of the strategies that we're working on right now. Cool. All right. And uh, what about uh, appropriation? Um, I know uh, there's a lot, there was a lot of sharing. There's a lot of discussion about um, appropriation and um, the coverage that was on uh, Toasted Sister and all these different, um, you know, uh, news organizations about just food and food appropriation. It's becoming a hot topic today. Uh, and, and you wanted to maybe just expand it a little more to food producers. I mean, what would you like to add to that topic? For a lot of our producers, you know, and some of these products have, you know, have become the demand is starting to exceed the supply. So, you know, in some cases, you know, that marketing isn't even quite as, as important. But in many cases, it is. You know, that's been a lot of what our efforts have been is helping to support that marketing. And I guess where my concern comes in is that if, if the focus on cultural appropriation continues to grow and some of the of, of the recent uh, dialogue on it, I'm concerned that it may provide, you know, may create a chilling effect where non-native chefs in, you know, different areas may be afraid to even use wild rice and as one, as one example. And uh, that's part of some of, you know, of, of where my concern comes in. And you know, if you're talking about a whole restaurant, 
the concept of a, of a Native American restaurant that's not employing indigenous people. You know, and that's a, a little bit different. But when you need to have a, a license or approval to even use a product, that's you know, I think that's going a bit far. And you know, I won't necessarily say anyone is quite exactly saying that, but that's some of where my concern is if we keep going down this path. You, you know, you look historically, I just was uh, was out in, in Denver for a Slow Food Nations event, and one of the panels that I was on, we were talking with some other uh, you know, chefs and producers from, from the South to, to look at something even like grits that is a big part of, uh, you know, of, of Southern cuisine, that was, you know, that was sharing that was going on hundreds of years ago of sharing those ingredients and the knowledge of, of how to of how to grow them. You know, I, I guess I'm just a bit concerned right now that we're going so far down the cultural appropriation path that we're going to limit some of that innovation and playing around with different ways of, of preparing foods. You know, I don't think that you only need to prepare, prepare rice in one particular way. You know, and if you did, we went to have had a couple of years ago at um, one of the, the food summits, one of the chefs, Claudia Serrato, had made this amazing wild rice pudding. And I've never even, you know, seen or thought of, of preparing wild rice in that way. You know, so when we become so limited in terms of how the foods can be used and particular ingredients can be used, I think it can stifle innovation and I think that it can uh, that it can scare people away from from even using, you know, the different foods. At the same time, I think it is important to have a basic understanding of some of the traditional ways of, you know, of how these foods were prepared and understanding more of the story behind it. But I think that there's a lot to be gained from sharing, and I hope that some of the current talk doesn't doesn't provide, uh, you know. A stifling effect on some of that innovation and and just collaboration. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's just um, and it's it's a very complicated topic too. I know uh, we focus on stuff like that every day here at my full time job, and um, of course in uh, Toasted Sister too. But it's like you know you want to go real traditional, then you might as not you might as well not use any electricity or a knife or you know stuff like that. You can dive into all these different rabbit holes and all these different paths, and so many people have so many different um, ideas about it. I mean, it's hard to find an answer because um, you get something different from a lot of different people. And I can imagine that's hard for non-natives to navigate through and, um, you know, why sometimes they, they just don't get it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, in, in Wild Race, mm-hmm. you know, we have, we have people look at, you know, $10 a bag or $12 a bag. Mm-hmm. You know, well, number one, one cup of this rice is going to cook, cook up into four and a half, you know, cups of cooked rice, but... You know, if you knew what went into, you know, to gathering that and to processing that and to putting it into this, you know, into this form that you can just take home and and cook on your stovetop, that's a pretty good deal, actually. And, you know, so part of, you know, part of, you know, of what we're doing is also the education and, you know, helping to tell more of, uh, of the stories of different foods and trying to provide support for those producers who are interested in getting, you know, in getting their food out. And 
ideally making it available for other tribal communities, but in some instances for, um, you know, for some non-native customers as well. That was Dan Cornelius. He's with the Great Lakes region of the Intertribal Agriculture Council. He's also with the Mobile Farmers Market. Check out the Intertribal Agriculture Council at IndianAgLink.com. You can also check out American Indian Foods at AmericanIndianFoods.com. And you can find the Mobile Farmers Market on Facebook. find more episodes on ToastedSisterPodcast.com. Music was created for Toasted Sister by C.W. Ione. Check out his music at C.W.A.Y.O.N.com. Subscribe to the Toasted Sister Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, and SoundCloud. Thank you for listening. <laughs>